If you weren't here last week, we hopped right back into the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, continuing our study there. So we'll do so again today. Open up in your Bibles to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, the title of the sermon is The Surprising Servant, speaking of Jesus. Last week, if you weren't here, you maybe want to go uh, to our website and get that message and listen to it because it was an important turning point in the narrative that Matthew is giving us, uh, a turning point in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. We saw him begin to draw real opposition. Uh, up until this point, it's been like miracle authority. Did my mic just cut out? Oh, well, let's not do that again. And... Uh, Miracle and miracle, power and authority, and then real opposition now from the religious leaders last week. We'll see it here in verse 14. We, we studied this last week, but we'll include it in our reading today, starting Matthew 12, verse 14. It says, but the Pharisees won out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he, was brought, till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for the grace that has been brought to us in the person and the work of Jesus. Thank you for your great love for us and the cross that is the proof of your unending, unceasing, love for us. Thank you, God. May we this morning, as we study your word, may we know your love. May we hear about and believe and experience your love and your grace and your mercy that's brought to us in Christ. Would it profoundly affect and encourage us? Would it lift us and heal us? And would also transform us to be faithful followers of Jesus. So help us to hear now. Help us to pay attention. This is the very word of God, your inerrant, infallible, wonderful word. Help us to hear it. Help me, please, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit to teach and preach in a way that's faithful and beneficial for the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were uh, paying attention as we were reading that text, you might have noticed that there's something a little bit strange there, something perhaps a bit unexpected. We, We saw in verse 14 that there's now this plot to kill Jesus. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're deciding, okay, we, we got to take this guy out. We talked about why last week. And what Jesus says in response to that opposition is to withdraw. He doesn't confront it. He doesn't stand. He, 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 he withdraws in the face of that opposition. And then a bunch of people follow him and he does what he's been doing. He heals a bunch of sick people. And then he tells them, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Can you imagine like the tension in that moment? Like you were a leper and now you're healed. And he's like, don't tell anybody. What do you, <laughs> people are going to ask questions. 
This is unexpected. It's not the only time that we see this. Seven different times in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus withdrawing from opposition and or telling people, hey, don't tell people about who I am and what I've done for you. We see it throughout the Gospels. This is a strange thing. Not what we would really expect. Now, why is this happening? Because obviously, Jesus could have handled himself in the face of the opposition. I mean, we've seen the ad power and authority to, to, to calm the storm, to raise the dead, to open the eyes of the blind. On the night that Jesus was arrested, some of his disciples got all heavily and like pulled out their swords and tried to protect him. He's like, dude, chill. I could ask the father and he would send me 12 legions of angels. That's about 50,000 angels. Jesus is like, I can handle my business. Okay, I have backup here. And yet, in the face of the Pharisees and their opposition, he withdraws. He, he could have handled himself. Well, why does he do that? And, and then why does he tell the people whom his ministry is benefiting not to talk about it? Doesn't the nature of his ministry and what he's endeavoring to do as the Savior of the world, doesn't that kind of necessitate that people would talk about it and tell other people? I mean, later on, he, he actually makes that the point, right? And that was the point in the beginning, Remember that first Christmas Eve when the angel appeared to the shepherd and said, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will be for all the people. For today there has been born for you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was good news of great joy for all the people. Now he's saying, don't don't tell people about me. Why the withdrawals from opposition? Why the secrecy? Let's look at a couple little vignettes that might help us begin to understand this. First one from Mark chapter 1. A leper came to Jesus, begging him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Again, the tension there, right? (laughs) Like he's been a leper. It's obvious when you have leprosy, like everyone can see, everyone stays away from you. You you roll back into your town, you're cleansed. What happened to you? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Strange thing. Verse 45, as expected, but the leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around. To such an extent, that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So there we begin to see emerge some of that tension. Jesus is doing this life-changing stuff for people, telling them not to tell people. People just can't resist themselves. That should be a good example for us. They start telling people about Jesus, but then there's this pragmatic concern that he can't even go into the towns to do the work that he really wants to do, and there's something deeper that he's trying to do, can't even get access to the places he really wants to go and what he, to do what he really wants to do because of sort of this swirl of popularity and excitement around the miracles that he's been doing. And the miracles, as good as they were, they were signposts that pointed again to something deeper that we'll get to in a moment. But people could, and people often do, just get caught up in the miracles, right? After the uh, incident of the loaves and the fishes where Jesus fed the 14,000, right, with a a few fish and a few loaves. We read about this in John chapter 6. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they chased him to the other side of the Galilee, nor his disciples. They themselves got in small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, we've been looking for you, man. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You, you see what he's saying right there? You, you kind of miss the point of the power I was displaying, the miracle I was doing. You missed the point of it, and you just got caught up in the food, in the result, in your immediate felt needs being met. Continues. He says to him, don't work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Ah, now we begin to get a clue of the deeper thing that Jesus is at, getting at. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said, well, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What do we got to do to get a piece of this action? Jesus answered and said to them, this is a work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus is withdrawing from opposition. He's not looking for a big conflict thing. He's telling the people to keep it all on the down low. He doesn't want to be overrun by people coming looking for uh, the immediate payoff of the miracles or, or, or perhaps even the political payoff of him confronting the Pharisees or Rome or whatever it was. So he had this sort of like self-effacing, non-promoting approach. We, we see it in verse 19 where it says in our text, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. That doesn't mean that he didn't preach or talk. He clearly did. The Sermon on the Mount, proclamation of the good news, so on and so forth. But his ministry wasn't going to be one of raw self-promotion, of loud proclamation, of like getting the word out. In other words, Jesus probably wouldn't have had Instagram. Probably wouldn't have been posting selfies like y'all are doing at this time. There was something deeper that he was after and going for. And what the trajectory was, when Jesus wanted to make sure that people didn't miss and all the action and the opposition and the miracles was the trajectory toward the cross. The aim is the cross. Everything is heading for the cross. Jesus is not wanting people to miss that the main point would be the cross and what he would do there. And then all of the other miracles and even the opposition, that, those were signs that would point to the work that would be done on the cross. Now, we can't expect people to have gotten that necessarily at this point. It was kind of a long road for even the disciples who were with Jesus all the time to begin to understand that. There was also a trajectory on which they sort of grappled with that and, and tried to understand that this person who has come in the name of the Lord, who appears to be the Son of God, who appears to be the Messiah, who has more power and authority than we have ever, ever seen anybody display and can raise people from the dead and calm the storm, is going to be captured, tortured, killed. It's hard for them to reconcile those thoughts. For a few reasons, one being there were a lot of messianic expectations in Israel at the time that just said, we're looking for a a powerful, political, militaristic, heavy-handed type savior of Israel who's going to deal with the Romans. And no matter what their expectations are, it's a pretty safe bet that what they weren't thinking is that when Messiah came to deliver Israel and to save the whole world, that he would be some sort of suffering servant. That would not have been the paradigm that most of them were thinking through. 
that he would be a suffering servant. And, and that combination, that juxtaposition of his great power and his authority and his humility and his withdrawal and his secrecy and his ultimate suffering would be hard to reconcile in the mind of even those who were closest to him. For example, Peter. Turn in your Bible to Matthew 16. A couple of pages to the right. Matthew 16. Sorry, verse 13. It says in Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others think Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was a Messiah. You pause right there. You, you see the tension there? Like Peter nails it for once in his life. Good job, Peter. Peter like nails it. And Jesus is like, Peter, that's awesome. And you're kind of the man, dude. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Like I'm going to build my church. Hell's not going to prevail against it. This is awesome. Don't tell anyone. And then in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain. This is important begin to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Now watch what happens in verse 22. Peter took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him. Pause right there. Never do this. Never take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him. That's how you know you're getting off track. Jesus, let me set you straight. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Here's the key point. And you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See what's going on there? Those closest to him, Peter was was wrestling with his juxtaposition that this was the Messiah, the Son of God, who had the very, very authority and power of God functioning through him. And yet he himself said, I'm gonna go. And these religious leaders who are all off base, they're going to take me and arrest me and torture me and I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem. The picture didn't match for Peter. That seems so counterintuitive. That seemed so, so, so wrong according to what seemed right to Peter. And Jesus calls him Satan. Like, what a bummer for Peter. What a high, what a low. Like one minute he's like, Pete, you're killing it. 
God revealed that to you. Good job. You're the rock. And the next minute, get behind me, Satan. And he says to him, you're not thinking about God's concerns, the deeper thing. You're caught up on the surface level thing, right? You're thinking about man's concerns. Wasn't thinking about the deeper point of the cross. Now, so Jesus continues then in this pattern of withdrawal and secrecy until the moment of the cross. And then on the night when he was being arrested, he says to his disciples, now the hour has come. And he told his disciples that when that hour had come and after Jesus rose from the dead, even as he predicted here, he told them after he rose from the dead, they would be able to connect the dots and then they could talk about it. We see this in chapter 17. If you want to turn one more page to the right, perhaps in your Bible, Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Okay, this is a transfiguration. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Pause right there, give me your attention. Because we weren't like Jewish in the first century, you don't know how gnarly this was. Okay, first of all, that kind of language there used of Jesus was obviously like deity God type language. Like he was glowing and and shining like the sun. But then for Moses and Elijah to show up, those were the guys. Those were the guys. In Judaism, those were the guys. And so here's Jesus, Mo, and Eli all on the mountain together. Peter, James, and John are like blowing their minds. So who speaks up again? Peter, of course. Verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. What a silly understatement. You can see he's a little tentative after that whole previous chapter thing. Get behind me, Satan. He's maybe measuring his words a little bit more. He's like, okay, this is cool. It's good for us to be here. And then I don't, Peter was into camping or something. He said, if you wish, I will, I, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elisha. Jesus, this is really cool. I'll put up tents and we could all just hang here. <laughs> Peter's doing his best. Verse five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse six, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen. (laughs) So unfair. They just saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus in glory. Don't tell anyone until, it says, the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So this secrecy motif, this withdrawal thing, it's got an expiration date on it. After the resurrection, then things will be clear. 
People aren't going to be talking about loaves and fishes anymore. They're not going to be talking about the calming of the sea. They're going to be talking about the work of the cross and the resurrection of the Son of God who conquered sin, death, and the devil and the grave. So there will be a time to talk about these things. Now, I want you to narrow in on verse 5. Again, we'll back up to that, the second part of it. The voice from heaven, clearly the Father, in this glorious cloud that surrounded them said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Does that language sound familiar to you? It ought to sound familiar to you because in our text, turn back to chapter 12. Quickly, please stay with me. Back in chapter 12, we had resonant sort of language in verse 18. When Matthew begins to quote Isaiah, we have God speaking from Isaiah. And he says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Same sort of declaration from God, same sort of language. Does that sound familiar to you? What was the other time when this took place? Good, love you church, good job. The baptism of Jesus, right? You guys are good. Here's the baptism of Jesus. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. So Matthew here is connecting some real dots for us because some stuff wasn't making sense. The angel showed up on Christmas Eve, said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Later on at the end of the story, Jesus will say, Go to all the nations and tell them about me. But in this interim period, he's like, Don't tell anybody. Don't want to cause any problems. The whole point of the book of Matthew is to prove the identity of Jesus to the original Jewish audience and so henceforth to the world. And so he's grounding these things in ancient scripture prophecies and promises. The portion of scripture that, he, that um, Matthew is quoting here is from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42, 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus. He's connecting these dots, the baptism moment, the prophecies from Isaiah, the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of God, so that we don't miss the bigger point. Now, this portion of scripture that he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 42, the first several verses there, um, is one of what is called in the book of Isaiah, one of the servant songs. From chapter 42 to chapter 53, we have a few little sections that Bible students call the servant songs. It's where God begins to talk about in the future tense that I will have this servant who will one day accomplish my work on earth. He will redeem my sinful people, restore them unto me, and he will bring righteousness and peace to the world. God talks about this future servant who would come. And those, um, that calling on this future servant, that idea became part of Israel's self-understanding because sometimes it's pretty clear in those Isaiah texts that God was talking about Israel, that God was calling Israel to engage in this work of redemption and bring righteousness and peace to the world and to be a light unto the world. But there's other times where it's clear it goes beyond Israel. And Israel certainly wasn't super faithful in fulfilling that call. So we have what is called a double fulfillment in prophetic scripture. It was both about Israel in the immediate sense, and it was about Jesus who would come as a Messiah and his ultimate work. 
And that becomes clear when we get to the climax of the servant songs, which we find in Isaiah 53. Then there's no doubt about whom God is speaking. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This is 700 years before the cross. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus didn't want people to miss the main point and get caught up in the Pharisees and their opposition, the miracles and their immediate effects. It was all pointing toward this deeper reality of the surprising servant who would suffer on behalf of Israel and the whole world for the forgiveness of sins. So in quoting Isaiah back in our text of Matthew 12, he, he's, he's clarifying, he's confirming the identity of Jesus as the chosen servant, son, the one whom God loves, the one in whom God delights, the one in whom God put his spirit. He talks about his humility, verse 19. He's not going to quarrel or cry out in the streets. And then he also talks about, and I want to camp here for a moment, his compassion and his mercy, his gentleness and his kindness. Verse 20. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, until he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Now let's think about that for a moment. We have there in the last verse, verse 21, this ultimate promise, this ultimate purpose, that the nations will one day put their hope in Jesus as the Savior of the world, that he will restore all things. He'll bring about justice on earth. In the interim, and somehow in the economy of God, he will accomplish that. Not through this sort of expected, like, uh, like dominating might and power judgment thing. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe would never perish but have everlasting life. John three seventeen. And Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So somehow he's going to accomplish that purpose of justice and vanquishing evil for all of eternity through mercy and compassion and kindness and gentleness. This is why when we see a leper before Jesus, Jesus has compassion. This is why when there's a grieving mother whose child has died, Jesus raises from the dead. This is why when the disenfranchised and broken, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the woman caught, adultery, caught in adultery were brought to the feet of Jesus, He's merciful and kind and loving and compassionate to them. This is the way of God. And we have this beautiful imagery given to us. It says there in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Interesting phraseology, but you get what's going on there. Think about a bruised reed. Have you ever seen a plant? Uh, Maybe you're a gardener or something and you have a plant and you accidentally like, 
you know, push over one of the stems of the plant and it doesn't break, like it, it doesn't snap off, but it's bent and there's like this bruised spot. It's usually darker green, gets a little softer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Pretend, yes, good. A bruised reed. It's like a picture of this thing. It's not quite fully broken, but it's just barely hanging on. Sometimes life leaves us feeling just like that, doesn't it? Just barely hanging on. How fragile is a bruised reed? It's susceptible to the rising of the tides. It's susceptible to the blowing of the wind. It's susceptible to being trampled underfoot. And God says that in Christ, he comes to the person who is deeply bruised and barely hanging on, so susceptible to circumstances and others, and he holds and he loves and he nurtures, and he heals, and bandages, and carries, and restores. He's not the kind of leader, he's not the Messiah, he's not the kind of king who comes along and says, well, that's weak, let's just break that off entirely. And the dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. You know, it's a picture of maybe a a lamp that's just almost out of oil, or all the material that was being burned is falling away and there's just almost nothing left. It's not totally out, but it's just barely there. And sometimes we feel that way. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. He hides us under the shadow of his wing. He upholds us in his righteous right hand. What feels as though it will just languish and suffer and finally be snuffed out, whether that's a relationship or a life or circumstances, Jesus steps in in his kindness and works, works of goodness and restoration and love and beauty, and he fans into flame what was almost not there anymore. And that is not only our experience sometimes in life, that is our experience as humanity. Sin had left us as bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. With no hope of self-healing, with no hope of self-reignition, we need an outside greater love to come and rescue us. This is what God is doing in Jesus. In fact, Jesus was broken for us. His life was extinguished in our place on the cross. This is the kind of God that we have. And this mercy is never ending. It's not only one time that we find ourselves in the place of the dimly burning wick and the bruised reed because of our sin and our rebellion. Oftentimes, and his mercy is new every morning. And he's present in your life, working a good thing in your life by mercy, grace, and compassion. So what that does for us is it draws us deeper into the love of God and and, and brings us into that place of of finding the fullness of our identity in Christ. Did, Did you catch this? That the same language that's used of Jesus here in this text and at his baptism and also at the Mount of Transfiguration is the same language that is used about us in the New Testament as Jesus' followers? That we become the beloved of God? The chosen of God? Ephesians chapter 1, since you clearly don't believe me. 
Paul writes and says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, right? Through our faith in him. For he chose us. There's that same language. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, there's that same word. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Just like Jesus, just like he said, this is my beloved son. Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will, there's that same language. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we put our faith in Christ or forgiven of our sins and become daughters and sons of God, it is said about us, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And the passage continues. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Just like God put his spirit in Jesus the Messiah, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So all those glorious things that Matthew didn't want us to miss about Jesus being the chosen, beloved, Holy Spirit, anointed, Son of God, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and so are restored to relationship with God the Father, those things become true about us as well as Jesus' followers in Christ. Our identity is no longer the barely hanging on bruised reed or the nearly extinguished from my own sin and foolishness wick. My identity is now the beloved son of God in whom God is pleased and in whom God's spirit dwells because of the cross. And so what that makes us to do and what that forms us to do by the work of the Holy Spirit is to live life out of that love to be a little bit more like Jesus. So in the same way that Jesus would not um, break the bruised reed or extinguish the dimly burning wick, that's the way in which we're to deal with one another and to deal with the world in that same sort of gentleness, in that same servant sort of attitude, kindness and mercy, right? Look at this passage. Let me give you context for this. Take it off for one sec, Jen. Um, This is when James and John went to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, We want to sit on your right and your left. Jesus, when you're the man, we want to be the guys with you. These were bold guys. Jesus actually nicknamed them the sons of thunder, James and John. So they came to Jesus one day, and one of the gospels even tells us that they had their mom ask for them. (laughs) They came to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, when you come into your full glory and you're ruling and reigning, let us be your guys. Jesus is helping them to see how he is and how they were to be a reversal of the way that we understand power and authority and glory. So he says to them, gathers his disciples and says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slaves of everyone else. And he grounds this then in himself in the way that he does things. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You see the radical reversal? What we want is to be served and esteemed and to have power and to lord it over. And what we've been called to is to serve others humbly, to make ourselves a servant of others because Christ did it for us. And we are now Christians, Christians. And so Paul would go on to say in Philippians things like this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, right? There's our identity, our standing before God. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Pause right there. I do almost everything from that place. I mean, I've got to check myself continually. I find myself usually thinking from the place of ego, usually thinking from the place of self-advancement, usually thinking from the place of how can I look better than, how can I look better than them, how can I go further than them? Am I alone in that? But the gospel, and because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, has called us to a radical reversal in these things. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Lord, help us. And it continues. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the surprising servant who gave himself for us, who is working the victory of God through mercy and grace and compassion and kindness and his unending love. We are the recipients of that. And we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ now have that identity as the beloved sons and daughters of God, chosen by him in whom he is well pleased. And we're called to live this way. And we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. Our daily prayer becomes, Holy Spirit, help me today to be conformed to the image of Christ. To lay hold of with my heart and my mind this great reversal that we saw brought through Jesus, the King of Kings, who humbled himself to the point of the cross. Help me to live that way. the way of the cross. And what's interesting, if we follow out the story, is that in the end, there is great glory. The story doesn't end at the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't end at the resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father in glory, ruling and reigning. It doesn't end at the ascension or the ruling and reigning in heaven. Jesus is coming again to earth to establish the fullness of his kingdom and undo everything that has ever gone wrong. There is great glory ahead. There is great 
glory ahead, but the cross is always on the road to glory. That's why Jesus would say to Peter and to the other disciples after he told them that he must suffer, he said to them in Matthew 16, thank you, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus was trying to teach them this very surprising fact that the cross and self-denial and surrender are on the road to glory for Jesus and his great glory in the future kingdom and for us as we come to the foot of the cross and we surrender our will and our agenda and our sins and our guilt and we ask for forgiveness and we make him Lord. If you confess with Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your great evangelism verse, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. But the confession is Jesus is Lord. There's our cross. I'm no longer captain of my destiny. I'm not the Lord of my life. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And after the cross comes glory. Paul would go on to say in Philippians, again, in being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on, on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's great glory ahead, but it was a cross. And so trying to draw us into that cruciform, cross-shaped life, right? A cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. The New Testament says stuff to us like this repeatedly. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Go the way of the cross. God will work glory in your life. In fact, the New Testament says that we in some way will share in the glory of God. We finish here at Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share in his glory, we must also share his suffering, the way of the cross. Yet what we suffer now is nothing to be compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So don't be afraid of the cross. Don't be afraid of coming to the foot of the cross where Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Because of my own sin, I'm I'm that bruised reed. I'm that dimly burning wick. Forgive me. Give me new life. Reignite my existence. Heal me through the forgiveness of sins and your presence and your love in my life. Don't, Don't be afraid of the cross. And don't be afraid of the way of the cross as it confronts you every day. Those are the little decisions that are ego or self effacing, other exalting or self exalting. God's way or our own way. 
These are hard, hard moments and daily decisions. Don't be afraid of the cross. Go the way of the cross. It is on the road to glory. All the glory is his. You are the beloved of God. Come to the foot of the cross today. Come to him in worship. Come to him in prayer. Come to him with your bruises. Come to him with the places that are seem fully extinguished and say, God, revive me. For God loves you and he's present. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your beautiful truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you were bruised and broken for us. Your life was extinguished that we might have new life. You gave yourself for us. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to lay hold of that and live into that. Help us, please, God, to lean into our identity as beloved daughters and sons, chosen. Help us to live out our anointing. As men and women who are filled with your spirit, called to your mission, teach us to be merciful and compassionate, kind like you were, with ourselves and with one another. Help us in the places where we're suffering. Give us faith today. Believe that the sufferings that we now experience are nothing to be compared to the glory that we will see. Some of us are deep in suffering, and it's hard to see that. Give us faith to believe it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to choose the way of the cross when it's hard to do. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the true, victorious, surprising, suffering servant who has given us life. In Jesus' name, amen.